You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Uh, Man, it's so good to see all of you. Uh, As Eric said, my name is Josh White. I'm the lead pastor of Door of Hope. I've been here with my lovely bride, uh, Darcy White, all week. We we came up early on Monday and have uh, been staying out uh, at Lake House uh, on, I know you guys don't say Lake Palestine, but Palestine. Uh, So uh, it's been so beautiful. Uh, Thank you. Thank you, Anderson, for letting us stay there. It was such a gift. Uh, Just enjoying I love the way that fishermen in, in Texas don't really care if you're sitting on the dock of the house that you're at, <laughs> reading and having a glass of wine. They, they're, gonna, they're just going to fish right under that dock right in front of you. <laughs> and uh, Southern hospitality, they are giving themselves to us. Uh, it's like, how y'all doing? Just, we're great. Now, that's what one guy said to Darcy. He's like, that's what I call relaxing. <laughs> so it's pretty. I actually fished, and I'm not a fisherman, and I, I didn't even know what I was doing. I cast in, and the, my third cast, I caught this fish, and I was so excited. And I go, Darcy, film this. And I pulled it up out of the water, and it was like, it was like a bass. Like, and I'm like, uh, this is why there are city people, and then there are non-city people. <laughs> so, I, well, I have been... Uh, asked by Eric to do something that every pastor <laughs> loves to do, which is preach all of John 17 to you today. Uh, and so <laughs> I know you guys are on a trajectory for Easter and, and, uh, and to keep, you know, your schedules more important than properly exegeting the entire text of John 17. So I told that I was told I have unlimited time now for it to truly take us verse by verse. Uh, there's no possible way to... Uh, explore every single nuance and facet of this incredible prayer, a prayer that's actually worth putting to memory. Uh, Because this is Jesus's high priestly prayer. He is praying as if the cross has already happened. He's giving us insight into that heavenly occupation of our high priest in the order of Melchizedek seated at the right hand of the Father. For Jesus serves us from a seated position because he's finished the work. And he gives us this beautiful look into the way that God himself utters words of promise over us as his people and over the world, which he loves and sent his son to die for. And so what I want us to begin with, because what we're going to consider today is really I want to consider what the love of God is. Because here's the thing, we as Christians, um, especially, and I recognize here that I, I was talking with... Um, uh, with Pastor David Dykes at Green Acres. I had the privilege of the terrifying experience of speaking at that church on Thursday night. And it was, ter- I was so, like, seriously, I was, I felt like throwing up. I'm like, this room is not natural. It's ungodly how big this space is. And there was like 5,000 people there. And I'm like, I don't know. What if they don't like me? And Darcy's like, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. I'm like, Still, what if they don't like me? <laughs> so it was a, but I was talking uh, with, with Pastor Dykes after, the, the, after I was done preaching, and he was just so encouraging. And he, and he said, you know, we hear about the, the progressiveness and the post-Christian realities of Portland, but we in the South, we here in, in East Texas, have our own, our own challenges. He goes, because what we have 
is a bunch of sermon-soaked pagans. And he didn't mean that in a mean way. He's just saying there's a reality that familiarity doesn't necessarily breed contempt. It just breeds dismissiveness. Uh, is that we've heard words like faith and love and hope and patience. We've heard words like justification and sanctification. These are words, justification and sanctification are foreign words to Portland ears for young, young people. But it's not foreign words to you. But can you truly define them? Because here's the thing, there is, there is a vocabulary, a language of the church. And that language is not meant to be thrown, thrown off to the side because it's considered archaic. It actually is meant to be protected because it actually defines who we are in Christ. And if I was to ask you to define for me what the love of God is, how would you define it? Because often what we do, instead of looking at culture through the lens of scripture, we tend to look at scripture through the lens of culture. And we apply all sorts of wrong ideas about God because we have definitions of love and faith that the world has given to us and that we have adhered to that actually distorts our ability to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Now, yes, God has a perfect plan, and his plan is reconciling the world to himself through his son. But within our limited freedom, it sure seems like we have the ability to do something that seems like it would be impossible which is we have the ability to daily resurrect the old man, the old woman that was supposedly died with Christ. Uh, so may we understand this as we consider this high priestly prayer, that the purpose of the gospel, I want to say this explicitly, the purpose of the gospel is not to get you out of hell to get you into heaven, but it is to get God out of heaven into your heart that you might be transformed into his likeness, that you might enter into a saving relationship with Jesus for eternal life is not a length of time, but it is a relationship with the living God. So let's begin by reading this text together. So John, so, and forgive me, just know this, I am going on so little sleep right now that if God doesn't show up, it's okay because I'm not your pastor, so you'll be fine next week. <laughs> I know this. No matter what I say, his word does not come back void. So we're going to just read John 17, and if that's all you get today, it'll be sufficient. Okay, so let's listen to the words of our king, our high priest. And when Jesus had spoken these words, remember, he's in the upper room. You guys have been covering the upper room discourse, such a powerful uh, picture of what it looks like to live the spirit-filled life. Uh, he says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. There's that mysterious doctrine of election, which we're going to consider. And this is eternal life. Notice what he says, eternal life, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Notice he's already talking in future tense. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus now giving us a revelation that he's not simply the perfect man, 
who lived the life that we couldn't live, but he is the God-man. He is the eternal word. He wasn't Jesus always. He was the eternal son always. He became Jesus. That's, that's a mind blow if you want to really think about it. The unchanging God changed to become like us. He never changed in purposes. He never changed in his character, but he became something he was not before. He became man. And, and don't think too hard on it because it hurt. It really hurts. Uh, and he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to about his followers here. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me. Keep them in your name. Notice the vanishing distinction, which you have given me. And what is the name by which no other name under heaven can be saved? One can be saved. Jesus. We're not preaching unless we're talking about Jesus. We're not talking about God unless we're talking about Jesus. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, we need to know that the Holy Spirit is the shy one because every time we put our attention on him, he wants to redirect our attention to Jesus because he's the missionary spirit. That was extra. That wasn't even a part of my sermon. And he goes, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. No, so what did he go on to say in verse 12? While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. God is after our joy. He wants us to be a people that are celebratory. He doesn't want us to be like Nietzsche saw in the church when he declared that God is dead. It's because that's what he experienced when he went to church, which is a bunch of people acting like it was a funeral rather than a people that were enlivened by the Holy Spirit. And he says this, but now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you, this is so important, to take them out of the world. Why do so many Christians avoid the world? We live as some sort of secret cloistered society to protect ourselves from those pagans out there. But that you keep them, alive, keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. He's speaking of the cross here. Our consecration, our sanctification, by the way, is through the crucified life. We die to the lie of who God never intended us to be, that we might come alive into the person, the man, the woman, the boy, the girl, that God intended us to be by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Notice, he didn't just pray for his disciples, but he prayed for his disciples that they might be empowered to be conduits of his gospel to the world. For God so loved the what? The world. By the way, that means even more than it says. Cosmos. How we try to do theological backflips to fit things into our unique structures, huh? 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, in me, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The world believes when they see God's people unified in love. They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know, once again, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the living God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And the world will know that Jesus Christ is whom God has sent when they see us unified in Christ together by our love for one another. It's so powerful what he's saying here. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's not a time statement because before the foundation of creation, there wasn't time, there was just God. Or we could say God time, whatever that is. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love, here it is, the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Okay, so, wow, that's so good. I'm so tired. I think we should just pray. <laughs> uh, okay, so first of all, let, let me just ask this question. So if, if we're going to look at three things in this text, and this is all we can really consider today, and I'm going to seriously, I'm going to, you know, we're, we're gonna, I'm going to shotgun you so hard right now, just fire hose you with content more than you'll be able to take in, and, that, and that's okay. You know, this will not be a TED Talk, uh, which they say that, we can only take 15 minutes worth of information. I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit will empower us to take in as much as you need to take in today. Uh, so we're going to consider three things from this text around God's love that hopefully give us a robust definition of what God's love is. And that is, first of all, that God's love is elective. Secondly, that God's love is purifying. And finally, that God's love is creative. And I'm going to explain what each of those things are through the lens of the high priestly prayer of Jesus. So I pray by the Spirit right now that I, I do honor to the text, uh, but most importantly that I do honor to the King, uh, and that you, are, you, are ex you experience the presence of the living Christ today by his Spirit. So God's love is elective. So I, I said at the beginning that, that the gospel is not about God getting us out of hell into heaven, but God getting, that God getting himself back into our lives that we might be united with him uh, in, in a relationship. We, we forget that the gospel is primarily about a restoration of relationship in three directions. And that sin is the exact opposite. It's the destruction of relationship in all directions. That's why hell, in its essence, is when we talk about the absence of God, it's not the absence of God's presence. It's the absence of relationship with God. And so what, what we need to think about is that is, is this, is that the, the gospel is about God restoring, first and foremost, a right relationship with himself. That God loves us so much that while we were dead in our sin, he sent his son, not just simply to identify with our humanity, but literally to identify with our sin, to meet us in our sin. And, and so here's the thing that I want us to see about God's love being elective. When I mean by that, because we get really wrapped up in the idea of election, because look at some of the language that he uses. Uh, 
you've given him authority, speaking of himself over all flesh, in verse 2, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So we often take the language of election. Sorry, my bracelets always jingle. My, my brother actually was listening to a podcast, and he said, take your stupid bracelets off when you preach. My brother doesn't hold back from what he really thinks. Uh, so, so here's the thing. We, we often think of election in terms of who is in and who is out. Who's the frozen chosen? You know what's fascinating is that those that hold to that, and believe me, the doctrine of election is an essential doctrine. It actually is a doctrine of incredible peace. But what we turn it into is who's in and who is out. And what's fascinating is that when we turn it into that, those that hold tenaciously to that, where that's like the central drumbeat of everything that they say, Jesus died for the elect and the elect alone. I've never heard a non-elect person uh, state. It's always the elect that holds to that. It's fascinating where, how this works. But, but I think when we look at this, what is Jesus doing? He's praying for his disciples. And he said to them, there's no getting around it. He said, I chose you. You did not choose me. But was he talking to them about, or is he even talking here about who's in and who is out? No, the logic of election, first of all, God's love is elective. And at the most simple basis, regardless of what your particular stance is and whatever tribe you come from, uh, as Christians, we can all agree with this. I care primarily about what is orthodoxy. What has the church tenaciously held to in regards to the issues of salvation? And this we can all agree upon, that God's love is elective. That means that he chooses in his freedom to love sinners in their sin. There's the choice. The logic of election is this, is that yes, he chooses people. He chose Abraham. But what did he say to Abraham? I chose you that through you, you might be a blessing to all nations. What did he say to Israel? I chose you from amongst the nations, not because of anything about you, but because, actually because you were weak, because you were small, because you were insignificant. But I chose you that you might be a priesthood to the nations. Failed at that. He sends his son. And Jesus really is the elect. But let me just say this. Jesus shows us the logic of election, for he says to the disciples, I chose you, you didn't choose me. It has less to do about who's in and who's out, because he chose them that through them he could reach the world. There is the logic of election. Amen. This is the logic of it. He chose you, not so you can say, I'm in and you're out. Because often what I find in the church, when you hold tenaciously that kind of idea, it's like people are excited about people going to hell. In that regards, we should be hopeful universalists because you shouldn't wish your worst enemy to go to hell. Believe me, I don't believe that all will be saved, but I believe that Jesus died for all. And I believe that he chose you, that through you he can reach the world. He said, I chose you, but then he gives the great commission, and he says, now go into all the world. And this is eternal life, that they know you. Here he says, I have chosen you. Here's the thing, I have chosen you. I handpicked you. We don't have anything to do with our salvation. I would say, he did the saving, we did the sinning. The mystery of God's sovereignty and human responsibility will continue to be a hotly debated issue among theologians. But let us, as the common folk, 
Just simply take it for what it is. God has brought us into a living relationship with him that we might become conduits of his grace to a world that needs it desperately. I know that for sure. Even Spurgeon, the great reformed preacher, said, if we are not missionaries, we are imposters. That the primary responsibility of the church is to win souls. Because God's love is elective. He chooses to love us in our sin. As Paul's all said, it is a love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you and has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. And when we put our faith in this Jesus who chose us, that we might know him. What is faith? Faith is allowing the Holy Spirit to occupy the whole of your personality with the adequacy of Christ. He has chosen you that through you, he might reach others by the power of his spirit. And I love this because when we say that the love of God is elective, we are saying that it is an unmotivated love or maybe a better way of putting it is it is love motivated from within, not from without. It is its own motivation because it is free, it is victorious, it is immovable, and it is unconditional. Isn't that what 1 John chapter 4 says? It says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. God's love is elective. And here's the thing that I need you to understand today. If you don't understand how much God loves you, you will not fulfill your election because our willingness to have dirty hands and feet and pure hearts requires an understanding of God's devotion to us that on our worst stinking days Jesus is crazy about you you know why God knows you it's not because he knows everything. It's because he cares about you, because he knows you. He wants to know you. He chooses in his freedom to know you, to make himself known to you, to draw you to himself. He wants you to experience his love, and love is the only motivation for obedience. If, I always say that devotion is what drives discipline, but we try to discipline ourselves toward devotion. And it's, it doesn't work. I, I try to discipline myself at the gym toward a devotion of it, but I hate it. But I do it because I'm vain and sinful. Uh, but, but the things, music, I love music, and therefore I devote myself to the discipline of it. Preaching the scriptures, I, I love Jesus. And I'm not some, I was an underachiever in school. I, God has given us, his thoughts in the form of a very big book that's quite daunting. But I continue to dig in day after day, year after year, not because I'm trying to improve upon something, but because I have received a love that cannot be moved, that he can't love me anymore, he can't love me any less. God's love is elective. He chose to meet me in my sin. We always say that God is holy. He can't be in the presence of sin. What? What happens when Adam and Eve fall? Who's the one walking in the garden? It's we who hide from God. God is constantly putting himself right in front of us as sinful, broken people. For Jesus came to identify not with our humanity, but with our sinfulness. And so he says, I have given them the words that you gave me. And what are those words? 
He is the living word. He is a revelation. When he was baptized into the baptism of repentance, he didn't need to repent of anything, but he was identifying himself with the brokenness of humanity. And what did the father say? I am well pleased. What is he well pleased with? His son's identification with our brokenness. God's love is an elective love. He has chosen to love you in your sin. He chose you that as you fall in love with him and experience his love, you will become a conduit by which he can reach all. For God desires that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. It's possible to die unsaved, but it is impossible to die unloved. And it was our responsibility to make the love of God known. My father is dying right now of severe alcoholism and lifetime of drug abuse. He caught his face on fire a couple weeks ago, smoking with his oxygen mask on. He, he can't take care of himself. He can barely walk. He lives in a cabin by himself in the woods in Alaska. And, and am, am I saying, well, he's clearly not elect? No. God loves Alexander White. If I can't believe that, I can't believe the gospel. He loves him, and he chose me that I might bring that love to him. Because my dad wasn't there for me. I didn't grow up with him. I owe him nothing from a worldly perspective. But it's weird. The scripture gives us that simple command, love your mother and father, and it doesn't even put a contingency on it. You wanted to say if they were awesome. But if it said that, we're all in a lot of trouble with our kids. <laughs> so, so here he says, I'm praying for them. He prays for us because he loves us. And I'm not praying for the world. In this moment, he's praying specifically for those that he's called because he has given them an incredible task. They are the, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. How is he glorified in them? by them experiencing and accepting his grace. Do you know what sin is? Sin is a rebellion against God's rule and a rejection of his grace. God is glorified when his children receive his love, accept it into themselves. He loves you. Secondly, God's love is purifying. And it's important that we go here because we're not trying to give you some sort of license to, hey, he meets God's Love is elective. He chooses to love sinners in their sin. It can't end there. There's no hope in that. I don't know about you, but I need help. <laughs> do, you, do you need You're like, no, but not even an amen on that one. It's like, <laughs> like, you know, when I'm in Detroit and preach, it's like I can't even get a sentence out with him. He's like, that's good. That, that boy's good. <laughs> I'm like so encouraged. I don't even know what I'm saying at the end of it. Hey, you guys are more like Portland. You're just like, hmm, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> That's my church every week. Like, hmm, I don't know about that. Maybe. <laughs> God's love is purifying. What is he saying in 14 and 15? He says, I have given them your word, and the world 
has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent them into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Notice his desire for his disciples. He doesn't just simply choose to love them in their sin, but he wants to transform them into, their, into his likeness. Now, here's the powerful reality of this. It's God's love is a purifying love. It's holy. When we think of holiness, we often think of holiness as just simply being set apart from sin. But that's not what holiness is fully is. That's one side of it. That's the negative side of it. He is, we are set apart from sin. We just sing those words. In you, we are forgiven. Our sin is forgotten. What a powerful thing to be able to sing. But, but it, that's just the negative side. I, I've been, I, okay, I'm, I'm set apart from sin, but holiness also means to be dedicated to God's purposes and plan. So when we say God is holy, well, what does that mean for him? It means that he is set apart from sin. That is, that he can get into the presence of sin without being destroyed by it, without being infiltrated by it. But he also means that he is dedicated to his purpose and plan, which is to save, seek and save sinners and bring them, bring to his son a bride, which is you and I. And I think that this is important because holiness reveals then that the church has a, has a, a double identity that we are the only society that exists for the good of those outside of it. Do you understand that? Because we often use the church as a means of protecting ourselves from those pagan influences. I mean, for some of you, the thought of visiting a city like Portland, a post-Christian city. I mean, here's the thing. You want to know how real and gritty a city like Portland is? My, my son has a friend at his school. My son, first of all, doesn't have a single Christian friend at Cleveland High School. Not a single Christian friend. One of his friends, Evan, is a 16-year-old girl transitioning into a boy. She's already on hormones, goes by a he now, but he's a 16-year-old boy that identifies as a queer boy, which means that it's a girl turning into a boy that still likes boys. Get your head around that. It's crazy world out there. And we're thinking, how could you put your child in a school like that? How could you let them be influenced by that reality? But listen, we can't escape the sinfulness of our humanity. And we aren't called to protect ourselves from those out there. We are called to be set apart that we might be sent right into the thick of it. God loves the world. He loves Evan. I don't even know what Evan's name was as a girl. But God loves, loves, loves that person. And it is our responsibility to love them, to enter into their brokenness. My dad is the most unlovable person, and yet he's weirdly lovable. It's, I don't know how to describe him other than that. And I believe that there is a responsibility that as long as there is breath in his lungs, there is hope for him. For God's love purifies us, purifies us, which means sets us apart, makes us conduits by which his presence is known. Here's the thing. We are to be filled with the adequacy of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what does it say? That the Holy Spirit is our helper, the advocate, who comes into our lives to bring to remembrance all that Jesus has said. Now, I like to joke that Door of Hope is essentially a, a self-conscious, charismatic church. We believe in the gifts, we just don't use them. And that's okay. Uh, 
but what, what, I mean by, what, I, what I mean by that is, I, I don't know, we're trying to figure out what it means to be a spirit-filled community. Where, what, I think that, that, that what we believe is that the spirit's primarily a missionary spirit that empowers us to actually go into the world to, to become literally the living reflection of the living Christ. Isn't this what Paul says? I anguish for you like a mother giving childbirth that, that until Christ be formed in you. That's the goal of the gospel. And as the Spirit empowers us, the, the, the Spirit also purifies us. For God's love is a purifying love, which means that he is a consuming fire. Do we understand what the wrath of God is? The wrath of God is not the antithesis of his love. It's his love violated. God loves you so much that he, he hates everything that robs him of what he loves, which is you. His love burns fiercely against the things that destroy our relationship with him. And he wants to burn that out of us. And our grace, uh, the grace that comes to us, uh, that when I say it's a purifying love, I'm not saying that, it, that it, uh, it creates in us the ability to keep the law. What I'm saying is that it actually creates within us the capacity to know him, and as we know him, it gives us the ability to enter into his world with him. He doesn't, promise us, he doesn't promise us protection from the suffering of the world. He says here, the world hates them because it hated me. But what he does promise is I will always be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And, and, and as we surrender daily, this is the work of God, Jesus said, that they believe in him whom he has sent. Our work is to continually cast ourselves in naked trust upon the mercy of God. And as we do that, as we, as we experience the love of Christ, the love of Christ compels us. It sets us free. And the freedom is not the freedom to do whatever we want, but it's the freedom to begin to do what is right. I said that freedom actually creates responsibility. I was talking with Matt uh, McGill about this. I don't know if I like the word responsibility. And I'm like, well, none of us really do. But... But what I mean by that is, I should say, the freedom creates the ability by the power. It's not no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That is how Paul was able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. What does he mean by that? What he's saying is this. If the world asks you what Jesus is like, can you say he's like me? Man, that's hard. <laughs> Ponder that for a little bit. Because <laughs> you're like, in, in your mind, you're like, that's blasphemous. But that's exactly what Paul did. Because we become the visible manifestation of the invisible God. But here's the thing. What does he say? Sanctify them in the, the truth. Your word is truth. In an age in which truth has become this nebulous thing driven by self-centered desires, our truth is whatever we make it for ourselves. We can be all that we want to be. Listen, we have so... We have been so infiltrated by the way of the world that we have a hard time as Christians who supposedly worship and cast our faith in the one who said, I am the truth. Truth isn't a, a, a batch of information. Truth is Jesus himself in our lives as we enter into relationship with him. This is eternal life, that they know you. And when we build our lives, but here's the thing, we can't say, well, I worship Jesus but the Bible is archaic. It's so hard. I get it. It can be difficult. Try 
my dear friend Tim Mackey's The Bible Project, if you're struggling. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you should check it out because it, it'll help you understand the Bible in an amazing way. But, but here's the thing. The Holy Spirit is our teacher, and he's a perfect teacher. And he will bring to remembrance the things that Jesus has said, but he can't bring to remembrance what you haven't first put in your head. <laughs> and so, yes, Jesus is the living word, and the Bible can be a dead book in your hand if it doesn't lead you to the living Christ, and if it isn't, if it isn't illuminated by the Holy Spirit. But when we have the Holy Spirit, as we feed upon the word of God, set free to take that in, he has the ability to bring it alive in us. Sanctify them in your truth. The word is truth. And that I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. And how are we sanctified? By presenting ourselves as living sacrifices daily, being transformed by the renewal of our mind. Do you understand that you are what you love? Not what you think, but what you love. And God wants to reveal his love to us so that we fall deeply in love with him. And as we fall in love with him, his love begins to purify our lives and we become more and more of a reflection of him. And it's not that we're without sin, we're broken. We wake up, I feel like the closer I get to Jesus, I wake up in the morning and I, I feel like I'm sinning before I even get out of bed. I'm like, I haven't even done anything, Lord. Come on, man. Uh, and that's the reality of our life. But listen, the more we give ourselves to Jesus, as we cast ourselves in dependence upon him and his mercy and his love, he has the ability, the light that reveals the brokenness in our need is also the light that conceals that we become living conduits. Have you been in the presence of someone that loves Jesus so fully? There is just that supernatural, natural reality about them I have to have. What the world needs to see is something about us that is actually different. Are we living in a way that causes people to say, I want what that person has? My wife's giving herself to Jesus, because we got saved later in life, me at 28, Darce at 32, 33. Uh, and, and listen, for her, it wasn't me giving her apologetics every day, which I tried to do, but it was meeting some young women at the church I was going to that had a light in them, and she said, I don't know what it is, but I want what they have. Sadly, the light was very dim in me in that time, time period. But that's the reality. He wants to consecrate us. He wants us to live supernaturally, natural lives, naturally supernatural lives, which brings me to the final point. And I know this is a lot of content. God's love is creative. Verses 20 and 21, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Notice what he says. He prays for the disciples that through the disciples, he might bring his gospel, his truth to the world. And he says, who will believe in me through their word, that they, will, they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Notice, he wants the world to believe that he has been sent to save that world. And how does he achieve that? by taking his elect, by purifying them, that we might be able to love one another. They will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Our unity in Christ becomes a living testimony to the reality of the living Christ, to the world. Oh, this is so good. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. He gives us his glory. What does that mean? 
so powerful. I mean, isn't the glory of Christ actually truly discovered in his self-humiliation? I kind of wonder if the play on the words here is that we experience the weight of glory only as we die to self. We don't look through the cross, we look to it. We don't graduate beyond the gospel. We live by the truth of the gospel daily. We preach the gospel to ourselves each day that we might be transformed by it, which would create the urgency to bring the gospel to the lost. But what we need is God's creative love. His love is elective. I choose to meet you in your sin. His love is purifying. I'm not content to leave you there. And I've given you my spirit. And as we receive the spirit, what happens? Romans 5, 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We know that we are loved, which gives us the ability to love God back. But as we are enter into that love relationship, we can't, we, as we fall in love with Christ, we come to that place where we can't rest until we invite others into that place of peace. I have experienced the forgiveness of Jesus. The thing I want for this restless world in which I live is for them to experience the rest that is available to us in Jesus. God's love is creative. And what I mean by this is that God's love toward us does not awaken within us a love that is sleeping or or hibernating it's not a love that was there at all it's an alien love that he creates within us it's the love of his very presence because he says it here at the end listen to this he says oh righteous father even though the world does not know you i know you and these know you that know that you have sent me i made known to them your name which is his name and i will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and how is the love of God poured out in our hearts by the very presence of God himself within us? And I in them. We know we are loved. Love is not just God's one-way love toward us. The one-way love is Christ himself. And what I want you to know is that Jesus loves you today. Just like he loves my dad who doesn't yet know him. He loves you today with a love that you cannot escape, just like he loves your family member, fill in the name, your friend, your coworker that you think is unsavable. Listen, if the gospel was good enough to save you, it's good enough to save those that don't know it yet. We forget that. Like, there's no way they'll believe. That's what my church, like, in our self-conscious Portland, I mean, I'm, how could I share that? There's no way they'll come to faith like, like you did. Oh, yeah, I forgot that. That's crazy. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> How, why do we struggle with connecting those dots? Listen, Jesus loves you. Karl Barth, probably the greatest theologian of the 20th century, said at the end of his life, after writing church dogmatics over five million words, he was asked what the most important thing he learned in his lifetime. And he said this words, and believe me, I've been reading Barth for years, and I don't understand half of what he says. I don't even agree with a quarter of what he says, but I, he's so profound and he's so thought-provoking. But I love this. This actually resonates the most with me. When he was asked that question when he was featured on the cover of Time magazine in the 60s, he, he said, he stopped and paused and thought about it, and he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Karl Barth, the great... Swiss theologian 
wrote volumes on election. And he said, I don't know, man. I just know Jesus loves me. You know what? The love of God is the crucial point. The whole Bible is a love letter to you, pointing you to the living Christ. He not only loves you, he wants to show you that love by his presence. Do you believe in the depth of your being that you are loved? He loves you. The hardest thing for us is to believe that we're loved. You can't earn it. You can't change it. You just can receive it. As Luther said, cast yourself in naked trust today upon the mercy of God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your gospel. I pray over Bethel here in Tyler, Texas. Lord, I've seen your spirit working in this, this city over this week. Darcy and I have been so moved. We already put an offering on the house. I'm just joking. But Lord, we just, we see the way that you're moving, the way that you want to bring alive those in the church that are sleeping, the way that you want to, to draw together the churches into a unified, singular voice that declares with boldness the gospel that brings an awakening to your scriptures in a world that knows that is thrown truth to the side and we've entered into an age of chaos. Thank you that you are the still soft voice that continues to seek and save the lost through us, your, the church, that you have chosen to love us in our sin, that your love is holy which means that you're able to pick us up out of the pit and put us on a new path, inspired by your grace, empowered by your spirit, birthing within us a love that didn't even exist before. Sanctify us in your truth, Lord. Your word is truth. And your word over our lives is, I love you. You are my beloved. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.